Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Justin Michael. Justin is a fractional RevOps director uh, and sales operations director. He's worked in multiple scale-ups and hyper-growth companies. So, Justin, without further ado, could you give 60 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, thanks so much, Marcus. I'm Justin Michael. I have been in technology sales for 20 years in 2021. I know it feels uh, kind <laughs> of crazy. Why did you look at your that. watch when you said that? <laughs> I know. I just the funny thing. It's like it's like the Grim Reaper is just going to show up and be like, "You're done, son." <laughs> I, I um, suspect he's closer to me than you. He, yeah, out of the pond. I'm a huge Jim Henson fan. Actually, one of my stunts to get a meeting was I sent Kermit the Frog cupcakes to the Jim Henson company with sugar printed as a QR code. And then you could take a picture of the cupcakes. It was a Kermit the Frog face. And then in the eyes were QRs. And you take a picture and it sent a mobile message for the oh, Muppet right. movie. And so this was like my Stu Heineke of trying to get the meeting oh, right. in a okay. super innovative way. So I've sold software as a service for 14 years, but I've sold just about everything for 20 years. Uh, you know, even even retail and, you know, I just have really tried to perfect cracking of the top funnel. I've recently launched a consultancy, Justin Michael Consulting. I also have like a mastermind group that lives in a Discord. Some of the notable companies I worked for, I did go through training at uh, Salesforce Marketing Cloud. I, I worked in San Francisco for Salesforce. And I worked uh, in Manhattan in the Empire State Building for LinkedIn. And I sold Sales Navigator, which is a cool role because everyone can kind of relate to those two products because I think you might all be using it. For me, though, I ha- always had a knack for hunting and cracking the top funnel using the new platform. So as soon as like Outreach and Sales Loft and Groove and Zen, I used all those and using special data platforms. So I got really into tech stacks and sales operations and revenue operations. So although I was selling and I worked up to be a VP of sales, I also was very much um, innovating around ways to automate myself to create more time. And so, uh, yeah, I live in Santa Barbara, California, a little south by the beach. And uh, I consult startups all over the world. I used to train individuals, but now it's pretty much uh, team training. I've got five other trainers that kind of work with me. And I'm just scaling up a, maybe a John Barrows type consultancy here. But I also have a whole RevOps play that's, uh, you know, we go in and optimize your tech stack. So, so I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see from your profile that you've worked with Mark Wahlberg. What was all that about? Yeah, so um, that was a pretty cool experience. He's behind a company called F45 Fitness, which are these awesome pop-ups. And uh, my one of my mentors, Luigi Prestonenzi from Sales IQ Global, has been doing some some things with international companies there. They're they're a great startup. The kind of training I do there is to help people optimize their LinkedIn profiles, help them generate business. There's a lot of franchisee models that have gone B2C over Instagram and Facebook, and now they're learning the paradigm of attracting B2B customers. If you can believe it, a lot of people are still using their LinkedIn to check the box as a as a CV. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Flabbergasting, really, uh, given how uh, powerful <laughs> it can be. Yeah. So you turn that into a, you know, attraction pull marketing and you rewrite your resume into, you know, what you're trying to evangelize. And then you start connecting with your prospects. This is like, for me, a paradigm shift from seven years ago, eight years ago. But there's all these industries that have just kind of been like, yeah, LinkedIn's not for us. You know, we're, we're B2C. But then the buyers who have resources to engage in a franchise, 
would probably have a full-time other business and would probably be good. So really a lot of fun to do that. Yeah, I've had some high-profile people I've I've worked with. I used to report to uh, Sean Parker. There's just this thing called The Social Dilemma. He's interviewed. He yeah. created uh, Napster. He introduced Mark Zuckerberg to Peter Thiel to do the first Facebook deal. At the time, yeah. he had a company called Causes.com, which was the launch application on Facebook. And I ran activism campaigns and fundraising campaigns for 200 nonprofits under Sean. It was a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, so I've had some really like high profile roles and then a lot of SaaS roles. And I've just kind of learned just about every way you could develop business right now. And that's how I train people. I go into companies and they, they can't get enough meetings. It's just the refrain. Uh, there's other problems too that, that you fix, right? Like <laughs> once they get the meetings... There's all sorts of mid-funnel and down-funnel issues also, but this is the key problem I helped solve, and uh, it's been successful. For the sake of the audience, they may not be familiar with the terms revenue operations and sales operations. Can you define what you mean by that? So it's this term, I'm, see, I'm very much like steeped in the technology business. So what's happened is sales operations, like the people that configure Salesforce and can make the reports, like it's funny, like people just like, you know, do a big staff cut, but there's always the person that knows how to use Salesforce that doesn't get fired. This is, mm-hmm. this is my joke. And it's not hard to use, but you have to go through all these trailheads. There's a lot of custom configuration with the data. So sales operations is the confluence of marketing operations and sales operations, and it's now being called revenue operations. This is like if you have a chief marketing officer and a chief revenue officer, it's the data and systems to be able to understand the full funnel of what's happening to customers. So, you know, how did we generate the lead? through maybe search or an event. How many times has the customer come into the website, downloaded different content? How many discovery calls and sales interactions? And you can kind of map the entire customer journey with your brand. To pull this off though, you have to be expert in the marketing automation, like the Marketo and Pardot world. You have to really understand your CRM. When you add B2B automation, like outreach or sales loft and you're doing pre-programmed emails, you have to have governance so that the people are saying, take me off the list in this system, get taken off in the other system and they talk on the back end. And, uh, you know, so there's this, there's this whole stack and the people that run that stack when everything goes wrong, which is like every day, <laughs> are the RevOps leaders. Uh, it's kind of a new term. It's probably sales ops still in the UK. I'm not sure. Not to say the uh, UK. No, well, we, we have RevOps as well, but okay. um, for many people, it may be slightly unfamiliar. What I'm curious about, because I I see so many organizations throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars into marketing automation, sales automation, sales enablement technologies, but their results aren't translating into top and bottom line revenue and profit. Where do people go so wrong when they throw so much money and so much energy into putting these tech stacks together? It's a great question, right? Because I've seen a company spend a million dollars on native social posts. And it's basically, you build a white paper for each vertical, you put ads inside a LinkedIn, let's say, it, it doesn't look like an ad, it looks like it was written by a person, they click it, they go through a gate, and you've got their email, then you drip to them, you've got like a marketing development rep who calls them. Problem is that the people that buy software don't answer email. It's gonna it's crazy sound like this, but the true Profit and loss, the PL holder who can sign the check. If they see a cool white paper, they deploy the analysts. They delegate it down immediately. If they're on a mailing list, something's interesting, they forward it off to someone on their team. So that's why you can 
you can't buy your way in. You can spend millions on marketing and demand gen and ABM perfectly, but if you don't have a team that's willing to get on the phone and call those prospects and engage and get live time, you're continuing to get pushed down to the consensus layer. And you think, well, this is a consensus sale. There's nine people. True, but if you don't get their boss invested, you know those nine people who have low power in the organization, even if they're all in concert to get the solution, won't do it. So then a lot of people purchase these sales engagement platforms. I know James Ski in the UK has been really promoting these summits and talking about outreach.io and Salesloft. Other ones called Zant and Groove, Zant's former InsideSales.com. So I go into a company and they say, oh, we sent 30,000 B2B emails last week. How many meetings did you get? None. Okay. Well, how fast did you start sending? Oh, well, it said we could do 1,000. So on day one, we sent 1,000. I was like, well, if you send more than 20 out of a Gmail on day one, you just get deprecated. So like you send that blast like a firework and everywhere you send to goes promotions folder spam. So you basically have like just blacklisted your domain on day one. So people don't ramp slowly, like it's very slow batch ramping. They get these massive automated systems and just start blasting these big multi-paragraph yeah. emails. And so then I go in and I'm like, let me try this. So I, I let their whole system in their domain. I go open a Gmail and I start sending the same prospects. Boom, open rates, 80%. I'm starting it. I sideload a Gmail to show them they've broken their DKIM, their DMARC, their SPIP, basically... SPIF, the stuff that allows the global internet service providers to say it's okay to send email from their domain is broken. And they're taking all these courses, like, I'm trying to personalize the email. We got to change our UBP for some reason, like the campaigns. I'm like, your email is never going to get inboxed. Right. You know, you're not even there. So, so we have like a fortune being spent on marketing. And then the people that buy don't want to look at it. Fortunes being spent on the tech stack to have this, this weapon and the email's not being delivered. And then you have very few people willing to call and they're doing the piecemeal call. They're calling out one system of data. Most of the data systems are 30% broken, so you need to buy two or three. Or I use Connect and Sell, which is a a weapon. It's a Ferrari in some sense. What I do is I have a team in Medellin, thanks to CloudTask, where I advise. They pre-call my phone numbers so they call Marcus and they get your your voicemail. Yep, and it's it's Marcus Couchy and they... They know it's you, and then they put it on my list. Imagine if I had 200 numbers all pre-verified and then a power dialer that's dialing three, four, five at a time. So I do two days, two eight-hour days, 16 hours and 45 minutes, and then I do it. I televise it every day. I have the phone numbers that work, and then I have the power dialer courtesy of being sponsored by Connect and Sell. And in the last 30 days, working one hour a day, I generated $800,000 of pipeline for offshore B2B, myself on the phone, just for fun, just to show people what's possible. And this has been differentiating my brand, and I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I I don't just train people how to do this stuff. I sit and face the blowtorch myself. And it makes people feel really good because I get treated horribly, rejected, questioned. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like I get like well, I often joke. Some people say I gotta I gotta teach you. Like they'll start teaching me on the phone. I'm like yeah, I'm just trying to get this SDR thing down. Well, they don't know they have twenty thousand hours on a phone. Like I've been on the phones since two thousand one. Very cool. Aside from the fact that people completely balls up the investment by implementing it poorly or executing it poorly. What are the blind spots that leadership have? Because I, I, in my experience, there's so many things that are being driven by 
command and, and control from leadership. And they're driving the wrong behaviors consistently. And they're creating terrible cultures where you know, the, the battlefield is strewn with the corpses of burnt out SDRs. What are the blind spots that you see from a leadership level? Yeah, so I think Tony Hughes and Tenbound, where I'm a futurist, they've talked about this thing called the silent sales floor is killing business. <laughs> it's, I well, love the, this line. In fairness, you can hear the spoon on the cereal bowl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I love that metaphor. I have a friend whose dad has about a half billion under management in like a mutual fund scenario. And I thought, well, that's got to be difficult to manage, you know, these high net worth people and all their money. But I asked him, I was like, you seem so calm. You've been doing this for 30 years. You know, he lives in like a penthouse in Chicago. He's very successful, a very hardworking businessman. I just said, look, how do you deal with these sensitive topics and these frustrated people? It's like you're managing all their money. And he told me, he's like, he said, face-to-face communication is like a hundred times more than a phone. And so what, what the B2B sales culture and whole community got wrong is they think all this digital stuff, this, all the digital, all of it is very, very low impact until you get this, until we're talking. Like we have to preference human to human, even over a Zoom or a phone call. The minute these reps are crutched on just poking around social media or spending five hours to send them to get the perfect email. Well, while you're making the perfect email and figuring out what charity they give to and their favorite you know, football team, I've already talked to two or three people live, maybe 10. And because they talk to me, it's neuroscience, the amount of trust that is built, right? And then they object and I handle it. The email, you get the perfect email. There's a concern or objection and they just don't respond. We're live. They're like, oh, I've been burnt by your model. Really? Tell me. Boom. I handle it. I'm empathetic. Like I'm, it's a humanizing the sales process. So all of the channels are killer. If you understand your priority, which is to actually talk to someone live fire. If you change your whole strategy to just, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get Marcus on the phone and just talk live. Even if he tells me to pound sand, I'll get farther than being that, you know, orchestrator of the perfect message to Marcus, you know, that's, I think that's where the space has gotten, you know, I I mean, the tool vendors love it because what's better than like, you know, (laughs) you get these kids out of Stanford and they're making a hundred grand and they basically spend seven hours a day doing research under 10 calls. There's no call quota anymore for sales development often, which is shocking. Okay. I have a slightly different view. I would rather that they were effective calls than just churning out hundreds of dials because that's the other end of the spectrum where that's the equivalent of knocking out a thousand emails because all they're doing is they're interrupting because they're not relevant. They're not timely. They're not contextually appropriate. And for the person on the other end of the phone, there's no value. Having a rep start with, uh and then kicking in with a really crap elevator pitch that talks about their company and their product is the equivalent of showing photos of their ugly kids and wondering why they don't coo and swoon. So I think the call quota, you need to manage behavior. But what I don't see happening anywhere near often enough is people don't learn from their calls. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of the lockdown 
and what it's done in terms of driving people to every single call can be a teachable moment now. You know, with tools like Chorus and Refract and Gong, these call analytics tools are fabulous if they're applied. But again, it's the same thing with your emails and with your social media. If you're not learning from your mistakes, then all you're doing is you're practicing being crap at golf and finding your way into bunkers and long grass and water. Yeah. So so why is it? Yes, there's efficiency and effectiveness and the tools can bring us efficiency, but we need the tooling because if you, at least in the US, if you dial 100 enterprises in the Fortune 1000, you'll get three or four executive assistants. So the dialer then, it's so funny because these dialer companies sell this, suddenly their reps have to talk to all these humans and then they realize, ah, our reps don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. It was much easier when they just hid behind the email and we could just give them templates because at least we can control the templates. Yeah. SDRs need training on the old stuff, the 90s stuff, you know, how to stay calm and have equal business stature, as Sandler says, with the executive. I talk to these kids, they're 25. They're like, I can't talk to a CMO. I mean, I'm just a kid. I don't know about IoT. I'm like, for the minute you talk to that executive, you know more about the internet of things probably than they do because you've been getting all this enablement. You're this specialist software company. Every deal that's gone down in SaaS the past 14 years has been a person making six figures and a person making seven figures signing it. Because ultimately the president or the GM or the CFO in a major corporation has to say, I'm going to take a bet on this disruptive piece of tech, right? So I love that about Sandler, the R theory, you know, where you don't internalize rejection in your job and equal business stature. I was trained on Sandler by a guy named Matt Benelli, who was at uh, Oracle for 20 years. I was a company called Kachava. They did a two-day training up in uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, in uh, the tip of Idaho near the Canadian border. It was beautiful. I learned so much. But I absolutely love... You can't teach a a kid to ride a bicycle at a seminar. Read it, read it five times, live it. A lot of my techniques come out of the way Sandler thinks, not necessarily his core tech, because that's what we need. What you just said is the key. When you're in live fire and you're talking to the prospect, the problem is most people use systems that say, the reason for my call is our CRM system does this. Our analytics, they go right into what they do and they don't ask an open-ended question to get the prospect to talk about their world, their decisions, their stack. It's all about them. And so my call framework kind of pushes a question from the front of the call and it teaches reps to say the same thing each time so they don't get caught flat-footed. But what you're talking about is the next level of sophistication where you can have an executive level business conversation and hold your own with people that could actually buy the product. That's that's actually what the job always was and will always be. Again, I think you've touched on something really important here. I left Sandler last week, so now I'm moving into the role of CRO for a number of software companies. And what I've realized over the years is that human beings really haven't been haven't changed in the last quarter of a million years. Now, we're wired in the same way, no matter where we're from. Um, and yes, there are cultural differences and so on. But at the end of the day, what they want is, are you? can you help me achieve the gains and the outcomes I'm looking for? Can you engage me at a time in a way that makes it feel relevant? And once you've engaged me in that conversation, do I derive value from it? What was really frightening was a statistic that came out of some research KPMG did tail end of 2018. And it was that only six minutes in every hour 
does the CXO derive any value from an interaction with a salesperson? Now, that's a terrifyingly poor statistic. And it's being borne out by Gartner's uh, Future of Sales report, where they now 33% of the people they surveyed are looking for a seller-free buying experience. If those two are not indictments of our profession, God knows what is, because we, we, I think we've done it to ourselves. And we need to start with the user and the buyer first. And we have to work our way back from there so that actually what we're doing is useful to them. It's not just yet another interruption to their busy day. How many calls do these people get in an average week, month, year? The amount of time being wasted by reps is horrific. So what's your advice to people who are setting, you know, I'm a new CRO. What's your advice to me setting up my sales team uh, in terms of getting them into the right mental state? Yeah, I love that. First off, I want to say I have a shirt myself that has the Grinch, like the naughty list, because my daughter loves it. So I love your shirt. By the way, I quote that. It's like, it is kind of like enterprise sales. It's like two o'clock, wallow in self-pity, three o'clock, steal the Christmas ornaments. I just, I find that kind of humor very British in a way. I love Jim Carrey. New chief revenue officers don't buy into the better mousetrap. I mean, good CROs get this, but technology for technology's sake is a fool's errand, right? Absolutely. Busy good technology busy. badly applied. Totally. There's that issue. There's uh, the busy fool syndrome. Inspect reps that are busy. Like, you know, we have to measure, we have to make sure people are doing the right actions and then the quality of each action is measured. So I think it was Jason Jordan who said there's like over 300 KPIs in a CRM that's trackable. And what you don't want is the sales managers to turn in these spreadsheet jockeys that are just checking these beautiful dashboards, all lagging indicators. They have these constant one-to-one meetings and they keep saying, what's the revenue? What's the deal? That's all a lagging indicator. Revenue is a lagging indicator. The leading indicator is, okay, do you have a named list of prospects that look like our best customers? Have we done lookalikes? Have we broken into a account-based sales development model? Each rep, I don't care if they're an SDR or an MDR, field inside, outside, we're kind of all distributed, has a defined list of the exact prospects they're going after. You yourself have worked with your managers to review the messaging. You yourself have reviewed the tech stacks. I wouldn't leave a stone unturned. Now, this is a very heavy lift in the beginning, but if you set it up right and you get your generals to be looking at this. Now, I've seen a lot of times where the sales managers on a weekly basis just have a one-on-one and they ask the rep, they're like, tell me about your week. No. Get into Gong, get into Chorus, get into Outreach and Sales Loft. Look at the email they're sending. Listen to some of the calls, at least spot check. Do not just, you know, because if you do the call, they're like, ah, oh, we're not selling a lot. Didn't have many meetings this week. I'll try again. Market must not be interested. When you go look at what they actually did, you kind of realize like, you know, you might, they might not be selling at all, right? They're calling the wrong phone numbers, the wrong accounts. They're sending the wrong message. And they're so wildly ineffective because they haven't had the coaching and training. So especially in C19, these are the times to refactor your ICP. I mean, you said something earlier that I want to touch on. I love Rudyard Kipling. I'm kind of a throwback, you know, like I'm into things that are 5,000 years old or 15,000 years old. I like, you know, literature and history and what you find when you go back and look at that stuff, because our generation often don't, is things actually stayed the same more than they've changed, even with all the computing systems, because the human brain has not changed 
since the days of Roger Kivlin. So he wrote this poem called The Thousand Man, and I'll upgrade that to The Thousand Human. But when you're operating as a sales professional, 999 people are just going to wing it and do what's natural. And what Sandler and the greats have taught us is that if you do what's natural, you'll fail. Just like in boxing, sometimes you lean at a punch and you put your hand in this weird angle and you shift your weight. It takes years to train this counterintuitive, like it's an unnatural act. Our natural inclination to be respectful and overly mannered and buttoned down and show deference to power, like that stuff will crush you in sales because then you're just sort of like, I always say it's like the bartender and personal trainer. Like we you know, <laughs> go out at night. Like, oh yeah, that's the bartender. He loves me. He spots me some drinks. You know, I have my friends drinks. And then next day, I don't even remember his name. But if I get a personal trainer, you know, like a Jocko Willink, right? I'm going to pay that guy some wild amount of money to wake me up at four and bark at me like a drill sergeant, get me to work out or whatever. And he's the one that I'm going to respect. He's going to be my friend. I'm going to admire him. I'm going to want, you know, so, you know, as sellers, it's like the path of least resistance and, and just doing what comes natural. That's why the challenger sale worked because it's, it actually highlighted that successful salespeople are doing something that needs to be trained. It's not a natural behavior because most people are sheeple in the sense that we're, we're just trained from birth to be people pleasers. If you're just nice to people and get along with them, good things happen, not in sales. Well, uh, you, you've touched on something really important here, which <laughs> is that you need to understand people. And as a species, we are awful at understanding other human beings. We don't understand what drives them. Simon Bowen has some really interesting stuff uh, online, which is really worth taking a look at in terms of his really simple mental models. But one of them that he looks at is the different types of seller. So you have a product seller who essentially is selling pills, and no one wants to pay a lot of money for a pill. So you end up uh, in a price conversation very quickly. The next layer up is the authority. And the authority seller uh, is somebody who claims to have um, something new and different. People come to an authority seller because they have a problem that they want a solution to. Then the next level up is the hero seller. And these are the ones that are starting to actually be salespeople because most authorities start to sound like all the, everyone else. And so they very rapidly end up in a conversation around price and behaving like a pill pusher. Now, the hero seller people come to for their strength. They want to be defended. And then the next level up is the sage. And the sage people come to for their wisdom. They come to because they want to be smarter as a result of that association. Now, very, very few salespeople ever reach that level because they settle, because they have a tendency to try and be nice. They want to be liked and appreciated. And what they forget is that their job is to go to the bank. No one pays them for turning up. You don't get an attendance fee. I think part of the problem there is compensation schemes, because I think a lot of comp plans allow salespeople to get away too long without producing and performing and without improving, because their managers would rather not recruit. They would rather tolerate non-performance. And so you've got this whole mix of um, problems that go on within sales organizations. And actually, if you focus on the customer and understanding what it is they need, 
and your objective is to serve and help them. And the compensation scheme is driven to make sure that the whole team, marketing, SDRs, account executives, customer success, operations, all work towards that objective, then miraculously, you stop wasting your time on all these masturbatory activities, uh, which are basically just a distraction. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I love what you just walked me through. Um, I've seen Anthony Ian Rio, <laughs> Anthony Ian Arino, Ian Arino launch a four-stage competency model. I, like you, enjoy reading a lot of stuff because it's always interesting. I could never get enough. It's the beginner's mind. It's like a Platonic or Aristotle thinking of like the growth mindset. Like I'm never going to be too experienced to look at it in a new way. But this Jim Holden wrote a book called New Power Based Selling, which has fallen out of the, the canon. It was called Confessions of an Ivy League Street Fighter. In the book, he talks about how everybody's doing like a feature function benefit. And it's funny now in Silicon Valley, you just, I just watch these pitches. You get the pitch deck and it's just like, wow, can you believe it does this? Can you believe it does this? And all we're doing is speeds, feeds. We're just right back at uh, on-prem Oracle hardware. You know, I, it's just my head wants to explode. You get up a, another level in, in his model where it's then like compete selling, where you're like differentiating with the competitors. And then he has like a political level, which is the hero sale. We did this at Exact Target, Salesforce Marketing Cloud. How can we help this person become a hero in the organization? They advance, they get promoted, they become the CMO because they've figured out this digital strategy and they've created a result, a business result across the organization and they advance. Because if you understand the politics and what the person's trying to do in their career, the sale could advance their career. And then the top one is, trusted advisor. And this is where I go back and I, I chat with Charles H. Green. I just like send the guy love letters for years. And he's very supportive. And I'm just like, you are a gem in this industry. SDRs today are following these, these awesome content marketers who are great at like rigging LinkedIn. So you go on LinkedIn, you're like, wow, there's all these like SDR points. So like, those people are the best at getting their feed looked at at LinkedIn. Go study Charles H. Green, the trusted advisor this rare book now. It's, well, it sold millions of copies in its day. But the bottom line is like, you know, there's a lot of ways to build trust and to operate at these very high levels of business acumen that are so far away from the feature thing. And then in the startup comes, it's kind of crazy because like, you got to be able to demo. Like, okay, great. So that I could talk about the feature function benefits on the calls because that's not going to sell this product. If we stay in the features, we're purely commoditized and we look just like everyone else. So I love the model you just described. It takes courage of the Winston Churchill, right? It's courage is the most important trait. One, be willing to move against the grain of the way you're trained at your company. And that's okay because you'll have people within the company that get it and will help you. Learn everything they show you for sure. Definitely. But then Go and read and educate yourself on neuroscience, persuasion, game theory, <laughs> some of the different selling models, the history and evolution of sales. When I found Tony Hughes, what I loved about his first book, The Joshua Principle, is he actually walked through a history of selling from the 50s to the 70s, to the 90s, and, and walks through the evolution of feature benefit all the way up to strategic, the Miller-Hyman you know, strategic quadrant where they feel like you're on the same side of the table. And I've, I've spent a decade um, trying to unpack what it would take for a, a, a high-earning, hard-hitting, high-disc, high-D dominant person that I talk to, to to lend me credibility. 
so that I could hold a C-level conversation with any C-level. And it's gotten so extreme that now I have chief revenue officers by the hundreds that I cold call on their cell phones. And I have these really crazy conversations. There's a Friday, 4 p.m. here Pacific time, which I think is 7 p.m. back east. And I called the guy. He goes, uh, I'm, the, I'm the CEO. I was like, great. Uh, I'm Justin from CloudTask. I'm an advisor. He goes, I'm on my boat. You know what I said? I said, look, let's just drop the whole call. How are you on a boat? And I'm making a cold call. I did something wrong in my life. And he just laughed. And he said, time, he's like, you need to get old. He's like, how old are you? I'm 40. He's like, you got to get a lot older to have your boat. I was like, okay. And I had him on the phone for 12 minutes. And he helped me refer to his demand gen team. He gave me advice on how I could improve my career. We had a radically different call than just, hey, do you want some SDRs? Because I let, I turned into a conversation. I respected what he accomplished in his career, right? It's, it's like, I always feel like that Jedi mind trick scene yeah. where Obi-Wan is like, these are not the droids you're looking for. Absolutely. Most, most sellers just take the brush off, not interested, not now. And then they just start fighting. Well, come on, we, it's, it's different this way. And they get, they like, <laughs> they, they try to persuade and convince and they're missing the opportunity to have a conversation. Well, this is the point. Um, I can't remember the name of the book. I think it's the one sentence sales pitch. And in there, he says that what most people do wrong is they correct and then try and convince. And what you should be doing is validating and then fascinating. And that's exactly what you did with the CEO on the boat. And the problem is that so many people will try to convince. And one of my favorite rules from the last 17 years is that you cannot convince anyone to buy anything ever. They must convince themselves. And if you don't understand that, then you're missing a trick because people just won't argue with their own beliefs, their own information. But they'll argue with whatever a rep is telling them because they're the least credible person in any conversation is the salesperson. They'll buy from a third party like an editor. So you get that validation. But the most powerful is, or the second most powerful, is other customers. But nothing beats someone convincing themselves. And if your conversation does not have a framework that encourages people to speak and to tell you their reason why and to diagnose their own problem and to come up with the solution themselves, you're working way too hard. And th this is the thing that's lacking. David Sander actually said that every 10 years, your sales system has to change. It needs to evolve. From what you're describing with Tony Hughes' book, um, with the Joshua Principle, that's exactly what uh, we see. Uh, the problem is that so many sales systems, I think partly because they're so invested in what made them successful, is they don't evolve. And I, I think evolution is the, the, the best uh, defense against irrelevance. That's a great quote. You said so many good things there. So what I went to market is something called Route Room and Multiply which is just fun to talk about. I figured it out when I was 27 selling SaaS. I was selling a nonprofit fundraising SaaS for schools and nonprofits. You could get your donors on there and you could do your capital campaigns. And these organizations are just raising money year round and they don't have a lot of technology. So my co-founders at the time had sold a company to Oracle and just retired. They all made like an insane amount of money and moved really to Santa Barbara. And yeah, they just went, they decided, okay, we're going to do nonprofit work. And I was a scrappy kid. I was working on commission only. I get in there. First thing that was like a little red flag is the, the head of sales at the time had like 12 deals in a year. And I'm like, that's not, 
very often this thing selling considering I need to sell a lot of it. So get on the phone. First hundred people I talk to, nope, already have something else, have something else, have something else. Time, there's a company called BlackBot. It's hilarious. It sounds like something out of you know, the Death Star, but the biggest company that controls nonprofit fundraising is called BlackBot, which sounds like yeah, a cloak yeah. and dagger CIA black site. But uh, I don't know where the name comes from. They're actually great people and they've acquired some good companies. So a lot of respect. But at the time, it was David versus Goliath and this little company called GiveZooks. It got bought by Salsa Labs. What I do is I call the people and I would use this weird ha- hack, like a Jedi mind trick, and I'd say, well, who's in charge of your fundraising? And oddly, by starting the call with not the reason for my call, but by asking them what their, their power is, they'd start telling me. And then I would like agree with the, oh, you use BlackBot? Oh, that's great. Tell me more about it. They would agree with whatever it was, Acme Corp. And then because I validated what you just said and agreed and listened, the conversation just starts extending. They start trusting me. Well, the second step, you know, first, so first I'm routing, I'm trying to ask them if they're in charge. Oftentimes I get delegated, make the next call and say, Hey, I talked to Ed. He says you're in charge fundraising. Yes, I am. What is this about? And just the referral from authority kept the second stakeholder listening. Yeah. Then I'd ask a question like what I call ruin, which is like, are you happy? Would you like to make more money? Would you like to be more fit? Would you like to have more freedom? Like if you ask people what they like about what they're doing, they'll convince themselves of a better way. Wait, what do you sell again? And I had this third step was a multiplier because I could never actually sell the software. No one would rip out their legacy system ever. So I would just start to say, look, keep that. That's a great system. Use us for the, this little campaign here. Plug us in just to do your school fundraising. And they said, oh, that's a great idea. Sure. And then, and then they'd ask me how much. And when they found out it was just a, a fractional SaaS cost, they're like, oh, I can prove that right now. So I started to close the deals on the first call. I had to create a bit.ly link to a slide share because my method was keeping people on the phone. Then I did like 63 deals in three months, which was like pivotal. And, but we were a small startup, so it kind of caught fire. And so I use that technique to this day. I teach all the reps to do that opening question of who's in charge. And then yeah. like a Dale Carnegie, they go, I'm in charge of IT. And then what are you using now? And they talk all about their internal brood solution or the competitor. Then you validate that. They talk it out. And then um, you just you ask, how's it working for you? This one question has made me millions of dollars. And then I just wait. All it is, it's spin, it's Sandler. You're, all you're doing is using an open question to unlock a pain funnel from the top of the call. The other systems, and I won't call them out by name, almost have a one-note heuristic in that um, they are all... You, you know, interrupt a prospect and you talk about yourself or your product. It's weird. And then they're like, well, just make sure you get the reason for the call and that there's social proof. But it doesn't matter because as long as you interrupt a person and start talking about yourself, they just tune you out. And the minute you start arguing with them about how yours is better, it seems logical. If I show you the differentiator, you'll bite. No, you're just going to justify and corner and slide me off the phone more. The only way out is the Aikido of agreeing and validating what yep. they've done. Wow, that sounds hard. You built that internally? Wow. Oh, you built out a whole Marketo? That's tough to do. Tell me about the onboarding. How was the implementation? How was the service? How is it working? On and on and on and on and on and on and on. And then that one crucible of the moment where they go, wait, what do you sell again? And they take interest. Boom. Now we're in business. They love to buy. They hate to be sold. You have to shift the polarity on a cold call. If it's just you, look at me, look at me pushing, you'll never get there. They'll just, they'll just get cornered and, and it'll leave. And I, I always equate selling to Tai Chi or the softer martial arts. When I was a kid, I used to do karate and uh, my, I used to do this style called Shotokan, which is great fun. 
but you had to be strong to do it because your blocks were basically trying to smash their forearm or you know you you'd punch uh, whereas with tai chi it's all about using the opponent's momentum against themselves jiu-jitsu aikido these types of martial arts are really good metaphors for selling because what you do is you allow the other person's momentum to drive them towards the decision to buy and you get out of the way my favorite moves in tai chi was called grasping the apple from the tree and you would literally put your hand uh, where their punch is, and you just gently redirect it with a twist, and that would throw them off balance. And I've actually used this in a, a, a scrap when I was at university, which was quite funny, because I managed to knock over a guy who had seven years military training, and there was fat little old me just horsing around there in the common room. And it, it's one of the most important things is to understand that people need that validation of what they're trying to achieve. They also need to know that you're not going to judge them for their failures. And you're going to help them put those fears to rest. And they've got these doubts, suspicions, gnawing worries. And you have to feed those because the minute you try and justify or defend, you're going to get resistance. And the other thing is you've got to help them beat their opponent. You've got to help them deal with, beat their problem. But very few people are patient enough. And clearly, what you're demonstrating is that immense patience to not just go to try and transact. You get there quicker anyway, but by slowing right down. And I think this is something that's sadly lacking. Now, one of the key skills that I don't see being taught is listening, real listening. That ability to help someone transfer their meaning. And that's just not out there, which really worries me because as, as a profession, you know, we're taught the cliche of two ears, one mouth, but it's almost never practiced. So again, how come so many managers, despite the fact the results are not out there, keep propagating these frankly shitty behaviors and awful cultures that drive this misdirected behavior? Yeah, well, so you covered a lot of ground there. So. There's a lot of problems with um, the lack of teaching of psychology. I think one of the reasons that Sandler succeeded, much the reason that Tony Robbins succeeded, is because they created frameworks that taught a psychology. For example, it's like magnetics or physics. When you approach a person and show extreme desire in them, you repel them because you're putting a positive magnetic charge. When you take time to spend five hours researching and write an essay all about you know, their favorite sports team and their charity and, you know, where they live and their hometown, it looks really creepy because they think, oh gosh, what's the catch? So it's like, we're taught by these marketing organizations that deep personalization matters. Now, Aaron Ross said about 20%, Jeremy Donovan's proven about 20%, above 20%. We don't really need to do that. I deal a lot with like hunger theory and principal disinterest. Something I've talked about with Tony Hughes is if you show too much interest you don't seem like an advisor. It's much better to say, okay, we work with Pepsi, you're Coca-Cola, there's a potential. Because the other 999 companies, you say, we crush it at Coca-Cola, Pepsi's going to love it, let's do the deal. They're just going to assume and they're going to be so needy and hungry. So there's these psychosociological methods and tactics that conform to neuroscience to make people feel safe. And active listening is really interesting. They'll know you by the quality of your questions. And taking curiosity, like the reason my phone framework works 
is because it forces the seller to listen. And a lot of this goes with fishing, like this whole strip lining the mar- marlin is one to talk about. Anytime you're fishing and a fish bites the hook, if you immediately start to pull and they're big enough, you will literally snap the line. For deep sea also, Lee Bartlett, I'm sure he's been on the show. He's amazing. He's like an actual fly fisherman. And in his book, I dug it the most because I used to fish as a child, both fly fishing and deep sea and sitting on a lake for eight hours and fishing you know, streams and lakes and rivers where there's no good fish too. But there is a quote from Tim Ferriss where he too said, the fishing is the greatest where the fewest go. And the world is concentrated on taking base hits. So if you, if you aim really high and you go for the right fish, what do you need for a fish? The right bait. So uh, where am I taking the fishing analogy? Another thing that I don't want to say junior, but inexperienced sellers and sales developers do is I, I was uh, listening to a call the other day and the guy goes, oh, sure, we can meet on Tuesday. He goes, he goes uh, beautiful. Like, like he had just done some amazing thing. And I'm like, you don't need to get excited. They're taking your time. Like, let's get excited about doing the deal. Like you should be assuming that you're going to catch people in set meetings. This shouldn't be like a flux capacitor mo- moment. Where you <laughs> it's like, gotcha. Oh my gosh, you want to meet? Like you got to stay calm. So like, I really believe in spin still working. Like the next order of question. Another big thing is the customer goes, I have this pain, or this is a problem. And a new rep will say, great, we solve it like this. And all the research says, if someone says a pain or a problem or even an interest, you peel it. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And you ask another question. Well, if you solved it, what would be the implications? Or if you solved it, how would that pay off for you politically? What would be, how would it make more money, right? The whole Neil Rackham's research, people don't realize this new generation, they're like, oh, they raised $100 million and $100 million this. Well, Rackham spent a million dollars figuring all this all out for us. And that's a million dollars in 80s money or, or 90s money. That a was like the most. Worth something. Yeah. So like there's all, all these new systems. And what I try to do is I try to hard code listening into the template or the script. So if you ask the question, what are you in charge of? Or you ask the question, how's that working for you? And then be quiet and let them talk. Most cold call frameworks, you don't see anything about a cold call with a listen step, but there's a whole strip line step where you have to let them talk. And if they give you any information at all, do not pitch product, pull for more. If they bite, if they nibble, ask more, get curious, just start stripping it out. So people watch me on the phone and get some on the phone and I keep them on the phone for 10, 12, 15 minutes like Tai Chi with these questions. And I'm just literally making them dance and talk to me because I'm, I know exactly, I'm curious and I just keep peeling their answers. And the more they talk, you know, I get some on the phone, they're like not interested. I get the not interested person to stay on the phone with me for 12 minutes. They've given me two referrals. They're telling me all about how they're solving it. They're, they're actually an advisor. Their buddy is to be perfect solution. I've got like referrals. They're giving me the email address and the cell phone of their friend where it would be perfect. And then the other 999 sellers are going to hear not interested and just, okay, on to the next one. For me, a contact is golden. If you can get a human being live, game over because like no one picks up the phone anymore. So every at bat for me is a chance to get goals because now I'm talking to someone. I'm not sitting on my social media and farting around, you know? Really brilliant advice. Justin, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you could go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Justin, age 23. What bit of advice would you give him that he'd probably ignore? 
I think, you know, I was a bit of a cheetah in my career. I worked for too many companies. The grass was always greener. I lived in too many cities. But I think the main problem is I had a gift of gab. I was always, I fell into sales. I was just like naturally really good at it in a way, in a sense. Now I look back and I feel like such an amateur because I had, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, you know, I'm good with people. I'll sell. That's bad. Uh, what is good is like, you know, I would equate this to, you're going to learn to helicopter ski. And you're like, oh yeah, I go skiing every year. You don't jump out of a helicopter into deep powder. It's not the same skill. You can't read in the book, like get an instructor, get up there, you know, learn slowly, figure out how to navigate deep powder, get the right new skis and equipment. Like people, I think, wing it and fall into it. The big advice to myself is read and train and get a mentor and go deep on this stuff earlier. I actually sold for 10 years without really ever cracking a book, which is greatly ironic, you know, because I I've been in it 20 years and now I'm an author, but like Jill Conrath helped me so much. I read some of those uh, early books like snap and I was like, what there's frameworks for this? Like, I I don't know. I, and it's, I talked to a hundred sellers and very few actually read. They're mandated to do a training or two they don't read and they don't fall in love with it. You need to fall in love with learning about your craft Absolutely. as soon as you can. And you'll find people, if, you don't, if you're reading the book, you're like, ah, this, is, this is garbage. There's, there's 6,000 sales books. Find someone that inspires you and then reach out to them on LinkedIn. There are 340,000 that come <laughs> up on Google search. and uh, oh, Sorry, on Amazon search. So Because when I was writing Make, Making Channel Sales Work, I did that search. And there were only, I think it was 151 on channel. So I thought that had to be a good market. But what's interesting is that so few people move into the sales profession and treat it as a profession. They treat it like something that's an interim and then they end up getting stuck in it. And most salespeople I know are functionally illiterate. You've got to educate yourself. And a day that goes by where you don't pick up at least three good lessons is a day wasted. Love that. So I encourage everyone to, you know, reach out to people like Marcus and bug him. You know, you might have to pay some money to get some consulting time with some people. Invest in yourself. But people have been gracious. Everyone I mentioned on this call, I've talked to. I bother Charles Green. I ping Jim Holden. I constantly bother Keith Eads, who's retired now, who's like a new solution cell. I'm like, you got to leave real estate. Come on back, buddy. Like, we need you. I talked to Gittimer. You know, we just had a call. Like, I, I, I'm a fan a little fanboy on everyone who came before me all the way back to Tom Hopkins. I'm constantly singing his praise. He sold a bunch of real estate in the eighties. And there's a lot of systems that have, you know, evolution has changed. Aaron Ross, I talked to him, Mary Lou Tyler, Tony. Why? Because I love their work. If you truly go read the book, do the audible, do it, apply it and reach out to one of these authors, they'll respond, but you got to do the work. That's how I've populated the podcast. I mean, I'm on my 200th episode plus. And it's all been by just simply asking people, will, will they help? And yeah. people do. They are incredibly gracious and uh, generous. Okay. So what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? These days, I'm actually trying to get as many people into a community, a mastermind group. And I'm using a new technology called a Discord server. The server holds 550,000 people. It's a video gaming platform. Imagine like a Slack but there's voice and video inside all the channels. So people can play games together, computer games, and watch each other. Well, inside my channel, we cold call, and we tear down emails, and we share the screen, and we look at our strategies. And so I'm building this thing. I'm up to about 300 people. Well, there's 7 million people 
according to outreach and the fundraisers who are selling. But I think it's more like 30 million small businesses in the U.S. It could be 50 million people that need to make an email work and a cold call work. So I've lowered my price to a dollar once. Uh, why? Because I don't want trolls in the group. But if you want to join my mastermind community, you just you come into this environment and you will have hundreds of people as obsessed as me that all they want to do is help you find people like Marcus, the best techniques. They want to help you nail your emails, use video email, nail your phone calls, get your tech stacks right. It's like this just community of revenue generators that are so altruistic because they're banging their head against a wall just like you in Corona going, no one's answering the email. No one's picking up the phone. It's just not just Corona that's happened. What we see is an exacerbation where it's truly sometimes brutal, where I got SDRs with like, I got to hit 11 meetings this month and no one's had a meeting for two months. What do I do? We solve that with you. It's not just me or my teachings. It's the group. Uh, it's like LinkedIn groups used to be. What's the URL for the mastermind group? I actually finally generated one. It's salesborgs.ai, like a seller and a cyborg, salesborgs.ai. And it's so funny because Craig Elias himself from Shift Selling came in and said, you got to get salesborg.com. It's available. I was like, total Wayne's world. Like, we're not worthy because I Craig is a gem. You know, he won a million dollars for his idea, the Shift concept with Tibor Shanto. And you know what? People are like, what's this book? They haven't heard of it. 14 years ago, you couldn't go to a Dreamforce and not see Craig Elias. So some of what I'm doing as a 40-year-old is a sales historian. I want people to study Gittimer now who are in their 20s. I want people to know Marcus Couchy. Now, you're one of the best ever at social media. You're everywhere, so that's not a problem. But a lot of these folks have limited niche channels and they haven't... The algorithm is really messing with everyone because LinkedIn has deprecated the algorithm. So unless you do it a very certain way, even if you have 50,000 followers, it shows 600 views. So there's a whole legion of sales trainers and leaders that are falling off into obscurity and retiring. And these new these kids are saying it doesn't work. But the truth is, if you enable the technology, it's more important teaching than ever. Value-based well, selling, strategic selling. Two things. First of all, I'm taking a, uh, at least a year away from sales training and coaching because I'm on a non-compete with Sandler. But okay. what I'm doing is I'm applying everything that I've learned over the last 35 years in the context of the companies that I'm working with. So uh, a couple of tech scale-ups. The point being here that Justin's made is you have to get good at using a technology like LinkedIn. Your personal brand is crucial. I have generated virtually every penny of business over the last 14 years by applying social media and content as a strategy. It's not to say it's the only way, and I wouldn't recommend that you have only put your eggs in one basket. But sellers, uh, HubSpot did a study last year, and they identified that people who are good at using social selling uh, will typically outperform people who don't use social selling by a factor of 70%. Now, you have to get good at this stuff, and it's non-negotiable. It's part of your professional development. You need to study, and selling is not something that you just pop out your mother's womb and boom, you're able to do it. Like Justin said, you know, he had the gift of the gab, but as he looks back, and I do the same, I was really good on the phone, but I look back and I cringe at some of the conversations I still remember having. And I still remember this guy, Martin, throwing me out of his office when I tried to use the balance sheet close 
And his response was, are you using the balance sheet clothes on me? So all this stuff, you know, the technique uh, that might have worked back then, it doesn't necessarily work now. Buyers are very savvy and you have to stay ahead. And if you are not learning every single day, and if you come out of a sales meeting and you're satisfied with your performance, that again is another sign that you've stopped growing. In 17 years, I've never come out of a sales meeting with a prospect, either good or bad, and been satisfied with my performance. Every time I come out, I write down what my lessons were, what I could have done better or differently. I debrief, and I'm still doing that. And I'm an old fossil, and not like this young whippersnapper, Justin. Justin, one final question then. And what, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to? Because it really is life-changing and critically important to their development as a salesperson. It's so funny because I can think over the last 20 years and some of the things you just said, I would hear those statements and just think, that's a great thing to say. I've now lived it. I'm two decades in and uh, I'm hitting 20 years experience. So I, I may be younger, but I'm still 40. You know, 40 is the new 30. So I have miles on the car. What Marcus just said about daily commitment to learning it's true. Like I have, I have decades to prove it. He's right. And um, what to learn is, I think you need to become an amalgamator and an applier. You need to Absolutely. learn every day. Watch what's resonating. Read the things that compel you. That books that you can't put down. I recommended shift selling to Ned, my friend. He's like, I couldn't put it down. It was his weekend. He just read the thing cover to cover. Well, maybe ten people read that. Some. It's, it's not, not their flavor. Find things that resonate and then try things. Create a test kitchen, A-B test. Do not become complacent. Don't just go to greattemplates.com and use a great template. Rewrite the thing. Learn why it was written. Become fascinated and curious about your technology, your prospects, and take a lifelong learning approach. Who do I follow? it's a bit polymathic. It's pretty much everyone. I even follow people where I feel like their content is bad. There's a silver lining in everything. There's a lot of stuff that has disappeared that is so good. There's a lot of books on closing and strategic sales that are for the bottom of the funnel where, my goodness, if people would just apply some of this to the top of the funnel, well, the top funnel, just it's a super fast get the meeting. But the bottom funnel is like, we understand their business and have all the strategic acumen and we do all this. Wait a second. If all of this person comes back up and tries to set a meeting, maybe it will resonate. So I would take a holistic approach to learning all of sales, sales management, closing, negotiation. And then some of the best sales books are not sales books at all. You know, read deep biographies of Winston Churchill. When I grew up, we had 25 biographies of Winston Churchill. We collected Churchill biographies. I know so much about Coventry. I've seen every documentary in my family. It was just, we're going to work, we're going to learn about Winston Churchill again today. But you could probably learn more from Winston Churchill about sales right now than by cruising around your LinkedIn feed. So I'll just blow everyone's mind with that <laughs> final statement. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you. So tell me this. How can people get hold of your prospecting framework? Yeah. So to get a hold of me. It's almost ironic because if you can't find me on social media, I fail. If you message me on Twitter, DM me, hit me up on LinkedIn, you know, just send me a message, jm at justinmichaelconsulting.com. I'm pretty much everywhere. But if you hit me up and you want to try this stuff, I'll give you a guide. That's free. You want to come into my mastermind, it's a dollar. 
And then of course I do group trainings and I have a full course too. That's a uh, 170 odd bucks us, but you know, mainly I think the gold is, is the, is the community of people that are shedding every day. They're wood shedding. They're dedicated to this stuff. So it's Justin Michael, like George Michael here to help you. And to b- build on that point, I think managers need this kind of help because we are in the third generation of manager that has no idea how to prospect, which means that they can't train and they can't coach their people. So if you're a manager listening to this, sign up for Justin's program. Thank you. Yeah, I train teams and uh, you know I come in and I crack the code for every rep. I work with AE. Uh, I'm sort of like a top funnel specialist to, to crack your funnel. That's uh, my big thing. You want to double your SALs. You want to get three to five X pipeline. I always joke. I say during Corona, flat is the new 20% year over year. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, my clients saw a 300% increase in get-through rates during Corona. That's amazing. Because, I mean, the people were available. They weren't stuck in planes or airports. And they weren't stuck in meetings. They were available. And if you use the right tools, you can get hold of their cell phone. And you can contact them directly and be relevant. The clients I was working with pre-corona, not one of them was below 140% of quota during lockdown, up to 220. That was the average range. And I had two clients that were 3,000 and 5,000% up on the year before. And I love it. It's perfectly doable, but you have to put in the graft and you've got to be patient. You've got to learn from your mistakes. It's true. I mean, that's what's been powering my business now people laugh because they're like, how are you going to make a living for a dollar? But when people come in and start using my frameworks, you know, I had this kid, he goes in, he was a top rep at Glassdoor. He's in for one week using my system. Gets two meetings in the Fortune 1000 with Colgate and Johnson & Johnson. These deals are worth $2 million and sticks in the pipeline. He says, well, I spent 10 bucks with you. I got 2 million in the pipe. What is this stuff? I'm sure you've experienced that as a sales trainer. The results of the people I teach or coach power the whole thing. And that's why I've really focused on your results because it's not here. I'm not the guy that says, well, I had all the exits or I was the best seller ever. I'm a growth hacker who teaches you some stuff right now. Or if you deal with me tomorrow, you start getting better results. Maybe today. And you've now touched on one final point that I want to make, which is this. When you're prospecting, you prospect for five years down the road. You're prospecting for lifetime customers. And the best form of marketing is your customers yelling from the rooftops why working with you is the best thing since sliced bread. And this being the point, the fact that Justin's offering this for a dollar makes no difference because what he's not doing is he's not trying to transact with you now. He's trying to create the conditions for you to be successful. And in turn, he will be successful on the back of that. And that's, you understand. that's, that's true. a great, great place to finish. Thank you, Marcus. You get it. (laughs) Thank you, Justin Michael. My pleasure. Fun times. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And also, please send us comments and uh, feedback in terms of how you've applied the lessons from this. And if you want to get in touch, then email me at marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you want to get onto the podcast because you think you'd be a great guest, email me or hit me up on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.